The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, it was close to uh, four years ago that we had begun uh, the parish of all souls, the, the mission parish of all souls, and we were meeting with a very small group of people in homes still, and we were slowly introducing Anglicanism and the Anglican liturgy and theology and all of that uh, to this group of people, many of whom are still here among us. Uh, and I kept waiting for questions or like kind of concerned questions, right, about, well, what does this mean and what does that mean for people that were very new to this tradition? And uh, hilariously, the one thing that I never saw coming, which was the first and only real concern that I had to answer for multiple people was, wait a second, why do we just pray for the dead in the prayers of the people? So four years later, here I'm going to give you a partial answer. By the way, that's not the dead. Those guys are alive. They're just, they're just working and making this place way more beautiful. So we're grateful that they're here. Each day, as we join ourselves to the prayer of the church, we say the Apostles' Creed. And toward the end of that creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And this evening, I would like to at least begin to show you why praying with the dead isn't just something that you can get away with, not just something that high church folks covered in lace should whisper under their breath, but is rather one of the most deeply Christian things we could do. And I think that the questions, why should we ask the dead to pray for us, and why should we pray for the dead, are sub-questions of the question, why pray, like at all? If God is in charge and he does all the work, what's the point of even starting the discussion with him in the first place? The question, why pray, is a huge one, and it deserves a much fuller answer than I'll be able to give it this evening. But for now, I'll just say that the Christian practice of prayer is its own answer to this question, because it serves as a revelation of the God of whom we speak. Prayer reveals to us that we do not worship the God of the philosophers or the God of the engineers. We do not worship a God who wound up the world like a watch and just set it to tick, to just sort of wait for it to run out. No. In teaching us to pray, Christ has taught us that the Father he images to us is a God who hears and speaks 
He is a God who relates to his world and to his people. And this is already and immediately amazing news. To worship the triune God who makes conversation is frankly the only thing that could make sense of human existence. We are all, after all, people who listen and speak. And to worship a God who does the same is the only way that we can make sense of our world. And to say that God converses, that he listens and speaks, is to say that he is alive. And also that those with whom he converses are alive. As Christ tells the Sadducees in the Gospel accounts, their grave error in denying the resurrection is a properly theological error. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he can say of himself to Moses, centuries after the patriarchs had died, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The definitive revelation of God in Jesus Christ is an incarnated revelation of this exact point. Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten of the Father, took to himself a body that he might destroy death, thereby proving and providing for a God who is a God not of the dead, but of the living. As St. Chrysostom so beautifully hymns it in his Paschal homily, he that was taken by death has annihilated it. He descended into Hades and took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And anticipating this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was purged. It was embittered, for it was despoiled. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. It took a body and face to face met God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw, but crumbled before what it had not seen. O death, where is thy sting? O Hades, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in a tomb. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the firstfruits of them that slept. To him be glory and might unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in a tomb. This is why, for centuries, the church has declared, Jesu Christu Nika, Jesus Christ conquers, for he has conquered death. Do you see the logical connection in the Apostles' Creed? We say that Jesus Christ descended to the dead and rose again, destroying death's grasp, and therefore we believe in the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The communion of saints, made possible by Christ's dismantling of death, is an extremely important doctrine. And one of the smaller reasons it's important is because it connects to the way that we gain self-understanding. As human beings, we are made up of a web of relationships. That is to say, we come to understand ourselves and our world through our experience of others. 
right? So if you spend all of your time with people who aren't telling you the truth about you and the world, you will inevitably have a corrupted view of things. It's just part of what it means to be human. Drinking deeply from the lives of the saints is a key way to avoid the dehydration of the present age. In considering the saints, especially those who lived far away and in times far gone, we are quick to learn that not all of the things that we assume are so pressing and important actually are pressing and important. But more than this, the communion of saints is a way of expressing the reality that we are all one in Christ, all members of his mystical body of which he is the head, and we are all growing up into him as a holy temple. When we gather together, we pray with and for one another. We encourage one another in the faith. But when we gather, we gather with the whole company of heaven. For we are being brought into the heavenly throne room as we sing the thrice holy. And so we are surrounded by the many-winged seraphim, holy angels and archangels, and all who have passed from the shadow of this world into the bright reality of Christ himself. And so we ask their prayers. I mean, do we really think that the man who wrote multiple times about his unceasing prayer for all the churches, the man who wrote that to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord, just stopped praying when he passed through the valley of the shadow of death into the throne room of King Jesus? At some level, I think, to deny this would be to deny the Christian hope entirely. Because the Christian hope is not just for a form of life that is unending, but it is the hope that we have been, are being, and one day will be completely brought into the very eternal life of God himself, the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. St. Paul is alive in Christ. To be alive in Christ is to exist as prayer which is communion with Christ. And so we cry out, St. Paul, pray for us. And we cry out in faith, knowing from the scriptures that the fervent prayers of the righteous avails much. This is, by the way, part of what sensing the church is all about. We are, we are manifesting the kingdom of God in the use of the incense. Because as, again, as we know from the scriptures, incense is the prayers of the saints. Rising up unto God is a sweet-smelling savor. The smoke that hangs in the air even now is an embodied reminder to us of the prayers of those who have passed on that mingle with our own prayers and all of us being combined into vessels for Christ's own prayer and priestly work. It's all Jesus. He is the one who prays in us and teaches us to pray. And so if we are praying as him as his mystical body, then of course we are joined with those who have passed on in this prayer. It is a Christian thing to ask the dead to pray for us because it forces us to recognize that to be in Christ isn't two sets of footprints in the sand. It's not me and Jesus. To be in Christ is to be in his body, the church, which is a communion that spans not just space, but also time. And it is a communion that is unbroken in Christ. Likewise, it is a Christian thing to pray for the dead 
that God would look with mercy upon them, that they would forever grow in the knowledge and love of God and that light perpetual would shine upon them because death, much like a college graduation, isn't an ending. It is a commencement. It is the beginning of something new. Again, when the church is at prayer, she is no longer bound by time and space, but has entered the dimension of God's kingdom. We're united with those who have gone on before us. All of Christian liturgy can in some ways be seen as a set of co-inhering remembrances. Theological, uh, theological nerds refer to this as anamnesis. We remember Christ in the Eucharist. But to remember here is different than simply a mnemonic device. It's not, it's not like a little memory trick. Rather, we are incorporated into Christ's supper with his apostles as we remember him, as we remember his work, the magnificent acts of God, and we remember the sick in our prayer. We remember the suffering. We remember the poor. We remember our bishops, priests, deacons, monastics, and lay faithful, and we remember the dead. As C.S. Lewis said, of course I pray for the dead. The action is so spontaneous, so all but inevitable, that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter me. And I hardly know how the rest of my prayers would survive if those for the dead were forbidden. At our age, he says, the majority of those we love best are dead. What sort of intercourse with God could I have if what I love best were unmentionable to him? I'm no philosopher, but I think at a certain level, being alive and being remembered by God are effectively the same thing. Asking God to shine his light perpetually upon those who have reposed in Christ is no less logical than asking him to save you from cancer or a car wreck or whatever. Of course, he's the one doing the work. He's always the one doing the work. And yet he has set up his work in such a way as to draw us into it with prayer. But it's more than just logic. It's more than rationality. The horror of human existence is the apparent finality of death. Praying with the dead is a way of planting the flag of Christian faith in death's territory. It is a way of declaring that Christ has won the victory that Christ is risen and not one dead remains in a tomb. I'd like to end this homily by reading Nicholas Samaras's poem, Easter in the Cancer Ward. Because it has been years since my hands have died an egg or I've remembered my father with color in his beard, because my fingers have forgotten the feel of wax melting on, on my skin, the heat of paraffin warping air, because I prefer to view death politely from afar, I agree to visit the children's cancer ward. In her ballet-like butterfly slippers, Elaine pad pads down the carpeted hall. I bring the bright bags, press down packets of powdered dye, repress my slight unease. She sweeps her hair from her volunteer's badge leaves behind her own residence ward for a few hours' release. The new wing's doors glide open onto great light. 
Everything is vibrant and clattered with color. Racing up, children converge with their green voices rising. What does one do with the embarrassment of staring at sickness? Suddenly I don't know where to place my hands. Children with radiant faces reach out thinly, clamor for the expected bags, lead us to the nurse's kitchen. Elaine introduces me and reads out a litany of names. Some of the youngest wear old expressions. The bald little boy loves Elaine's long mane of hair and holds the healthy thickness to his face, hearing her laugh as she pulls him close. I'm dying, he says. And Elaine tells him she is too. Too much iron silting her veins. I can never accept that truth, yet in five months she'll slip away in a September night, leaving her parents and me to bow our heads, bury her in a white wedding gown, our people's custom. But right now I don't know this. Right now we are young, still immortal, and the kids fidget, crying out for their eggs. Elaine divides them into teams. I lay out the tools for the operation. I tell them how painting Easter eggs used to be done in the old country, before easy dyes were common, village bo villagers boiled onion peels, ladled eggs into pots so the shells wouldn't break. They'd scoop them out, flushed a brownish red, and the elders would polish and polish them with olive oil, singing hymns for the holy Thursday hours. The children laugh and boo when I try to sing. The boys swirl speckles of color into hot water, while the girls time the eggs. When a white-faced boy asks from nowhere if I believe in Christ and living forever, I stop stirring the mix, answer, yes, I do. I answer slowly, and when I speak, my own voice deafens me. The simple truth blooms like these painted flowers riding up the bright kitchen walls. I come to belief. I know that much. Still, what a man may do with belief demands more than what he says. Now the hot waters are stained a rich red. The eggs have boiled and cooled. To each set of hands, Elaine gives one towel, three eggs. I pass the pot of melted paraffin and show these children how to take the eggs and dip them in and out. While the wax hardens to an opaque film, we hum Christos Aneste, and the room bustles a jabber with speech. Holding pins firmly, we scratch out mad designs where the color will fill. Small, flurried hands etch and scrim the shells. Everyone's fingers whirl and scratch in names, delicate and final. Edging the hall's threshold, an April's allowance of sun filters through tinted windows. Faces furrow in solemn concentration. Looking to Elaine, my thoughts clamor for what is redemptive in illness, for having a credo to hold these people to me. Etchings done, everyone immerses the waxy eggs in the pooled dye. We ooh together when transfigured eggs are spooned out, wiped and dried on the counters. Soft wax is peeled gingerly, flecked away, more ooze from the tracks of limbed lines, testimonial names. We burnish the shells with olive oil for a fine sheen. For a moment, the cultivated, finished eggs hush the room. Then every child goes wild in a rush to compare, to show the nurses each other. 
The bald boy taps my waist. Lined up and speechless, they present me with a bright autographed egg, communally done. Elaine makes me close my eyes and laughs when small limbs push at my back to follow her. They shove my hands into the cool, wet, red dye. The hollow-eyed girl squeals till tears streak from her laughing. Another child cries, you'll never get it off. And today I don't want to. Today we've painted eggs a lively color, not caring about the body's cells and the cells' incarceration. I lift my arms to embrace Elaine, dab her nose and chin, and my hands are vivid red. My hands are bloody with resurrection, and we are laughing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 